listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I'm Nate. And I am the last Hispanic in Utah, Ray. <laughs> So we wanted to start off today by talking about a movie that Ray and I were both supposed to see, but I did not get a chance to see the movie. And I'll tell my story really quickly. So Ray Ray and I were both going to watch Barbarian this week because there's been a lot of talk about this movie. I went with my brothers to go watch this film at an AMC theaters near where I live. And I went in and I saw John Boyega on the screen and I was like, I don't think John Boyega is in this movie and Ray told me you don't know what happens in this movie and I was like yeah you're 100% right he could have been in it but I went out told the people that they were playing the wrong movie let it be known he could still be in it by the way you don't know that (laughs) that's that's very true I have no idea but they came out they came in the theater and they said we cannot start this showtime for you all and I had a concert I was going to in the evening so I ended up not getting to see it but I am going to try to go back sometime in the week because I'd like to have a discussion maybe we could do a discussion Ray on especially like coming into the horror season where maybe we get a little bit more into spoiler territory just let people know ahead of time because I'm sure that'll make it more interesting but I am really curious to hear your thoughts on it because I was disappointed that I didn't get the chance to see it we don't normally do this but I am so excited about this that I just want to share it the band No Devotion came out with a new album this weekend and it's incredible and everyone needs to go check it out it's called No Oblivion and the band is called No Devotion and everyone should check it out it's incredible That sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to checking it out. So now tell me about your experience with Barbarian since I didn't get to have that experience. So this was kind of cool. I saw the trailer for Barbarian and you you know, you see the trailer of this woman that gets double booked in an Airbnb with um, with Bill Skarsgård with Pennywise. There's this confusion and then the guy seems kind of weird, maybe a little awkward, not super trustworthy, but he tells her, hey, you should you should stay in here because I don't know if you've seen this neighborhood is really bad. You should just spend the night here and we can figure out this issue tomorrow. And then they show shots of really creepy things going on inside the house. And then you get the title card, Barbarian. And that is the trailer that you get. So you, when I saw this, I'm like, okay, so this is one of those like slashers, maybe haunted house type movie. You know, just trying to figure out what it was. I appreciated that the trailer didn't show me anything, but I was like, oh, I'm sure we'll get a trailer number two that will give away the entire plot of the movie. You know, a, a few weeks later, I see a, an article on a movie, movie articles and they're like, Justin Long talks about how he enjoy working on Barbarian. I was like, Justin Long is in it? I didn't even see him on the trailer. But then I noticed that his name was on the poster. So I was like, oh, well, he must have some part in it that that I didn't know about. Then the reviews started coming out and you had all these movie critics being like, if you're a horror fan, you need to watch this movie. And then I was like, okay, I've heard this hype train before about horror movies and I was sorely disappointed. And I heard other people being like, what makes this movie so great is the mystery behind it. And I'm like, the mystery? 
It looks like a pretty straightforward movie. And then I saw the review from Chris Stuckman and Chris Stuckman was like, if you've seen that trailer, you've seen about like 5% of the movie. You don't know anything. Like you think that's the movie. That is not the movie you're going to get. And here's what I wanted to talk about before I talk about my experience. And this is advertisement, crowd expectations. Because I feel like a lot of movies, a lot of a lot of movies are advertised in this way where they're either misadvertised or they give away way too much because... I feel like the studios, I mean, unfortunately, rightfully so, don't trust the audience enough to go watch a movie. So doing a really vague trailer doesn't get seats, you know, in the theater. So I think that's why the horror community is rallying around this movie because they're like, we finally got what we've been asking for. We got a movie that's vague. It's mysterious. We don't know everything. And when you go into the movies, it's an experience because what you saw in the trailer is not quite what this movie is. So, you know, and I plead everyone listening to this, go watch this movie in theater, support this movie, because I'm not going to sit here and tell you the movie is like, it's reinventing the wheel of horror. No, it's a great horror movie. It definitely has a lot of elements that I will talk about some other time. Um, because again, I don't, I really want people to go in here as blindly as humanly possible. But I've sat on the movies. I, you know, have my drink and my pizza and I just kind of kick my feet up. I got a luxury seating, everything. And I'm sitting there and the movie starts. The first act was basically what you saw on the, on the trailer. And then an event happens in the middle of the movie and my jaw dropped and I was like, hold on. This is not the movie I signed up for, but I say that in the best way possible. The funny thing is that the director, like, his credits are, like, the whitest kid you know, and really, like, silly stuff like that. If it's not his debut, it's his horror debut for sure, but I don't even want to get into who the other actors are in this movie. I want people to go watch this as blind as possible because it was so nice. The best way I can describe it, and maybe and you can relate, Nate, um, because you, like me, want your movies to be vague and you want to experience the film i've used this example to people a lot and i'll use this example again because i feel like a lot of people can relate imagine you went to see captain america civil war you went and saw that movie and the trailer never showed you spider-man in the movie and as you're sitting there watching this movie spider-man shows up and you had no idea spider-man was going to be in this movie you know the reaction of that crowd would have been to lose their minds so i feel like similarly to that it's barbarian where you know spider-man showing up in a marvel movie in hindsight shouldn't be that big of a deal it makes sense that he would be in the mcu but because we didn't know about it it made it a thousand times better so same thing with barbarian Certain things happen in this movie that are standard horror tropes, but because we didn't know about it, it enhanced the experience a thousand percent. What I'm telling anybody listening to, and you, Nate, if all you've seen is a trailer, stop. Do not seek out anything beyond the trailer. Get in your car after this episode is over and go watch Barbarian because it's an experience to be had. And if you're a horror fan like we are and you are sick of Hollywood spoiling movies via trailers, this is our chance to put our money where our mouth is. Well, and I think you made a lot of really good points there. But one of the big things I want to bring up is I feel like a lot of this is attributed to Hollywood has no trust in their audiences anymore. They feel like if they don't spell every single thing out for you in the trailer that it's that like no one's gonna go watch it like funny enough I I sat in that trailer for the movie I didn't watch yesterday and the new George Clooney Julia Stiles trailer came on for like the romantic comedy and it literally showed you beat by beat 
every plot point of the movie to where you're like, I watched a two and a half minute trailer and I know everything that's going to happen in the movie. What would make me want to go see the movie? And it's like when these people make this mo- these trailers, I don't know if they just think that people don't have the attention spans that they used to have, but it's like we've got to give every single thing away. Like Ray and I were talking about it before the podcast and Jordan Peele's Nope. The first trailer that they released was amazing. It was super vague. It was mostly just imagery. You had no idea really what you were going to get in in for other than there was an implication that some sort of alien presence was going to be there, which is fine. That gives you like sort of an idea, but it's enough to pique your interest. That last trailer they released gave way too much away. And it's like you go in there and you already have an idea in your head because that trailer spelled so much out for you. And I think back to like the 1970s in the 1980s when the internet wasn't a thing and like a lot of people would just go watch movies based on posters because if you weren't at the theater all the time it's not like you were seeing a whole bunch of trailers to movies on a day-to-day basis you were seeing your trailers before you went to go see the movie while you were in the theater and filmmakers had to trust that in the posters and the cast members and all of that that audiences would be excited to go see a movie and now it's like no we'll release a trailer and spell every individual detail out. And I think this movie, I don't know, obviously I'm I'm in the dark about Barbarian because I don't want to know anything about it, but I feel like this movie is being treated very similarly to James Wan's Malignant and that that was another movie that did not give too much away in the trailer. And when you went in there, you had no idea what to expect from that movie because it's not a typical James Wan movie. It guises itself as a typical James Wan movie, but becomes something entirely different. And I have the utmost respect for filmmakers that are willing to do that to audiences to just kind of like flip the script on them and make something super unique and interesting because that's not a, a movies we get a lot. I think another one would be Everything Everywhere All at Once is like that trailer gave you a vague idea to what the movie was going to be about, but I don't think you ever would have expected just how insane that movie panned out to be. So I'm in the same agreeance with Ray. I haven't seen this movie yet, but go support more movies like this because we as film lovers and horror lovers, we want movies that surprise us and excite us. And that's like the conversation is because like I log onto Twitter and Instagram and I see these people say, go see this. I don't want to talk about it. And the audiences are being really respectful about not, not spoiling it, leaving it up to the filmmakers to provide a great experience. And that's something I really look forward to matter is even if this movie ultimately isn't your thing even if you're like you know it was great but i don't see what the hype is the point i'm trying to drive home is we need more movies like this we need hollywood to understand that we're not idiots that we don't want you know things spelled out for us we want to be able to experience these things like we used to and not be like handheld throughout a film but like let us enjoy things let us really enjoy the things that that we love without you having to hold our hands. What I think is really cool too, Ray, on that topic is that when I logged onto Letterboxd, most of the people who I follow on Letterboxd, the reviews have been anywhere between a three star to a five star. I give it but a four. Every single, every single review has said, go watch this movie. 
Even if it's as low as a three-star review, people still respect it enough and what it's trying to do to advocate for people seeing the movie. And I think that speaks volumes more than anything else. Yeah, 1,000%. So put put your money where your mouth is. I mean, we as, as a film community have been complaining about Hollywood doing this. For once, they're giving us the benefit of the doubt. So let's prove them that this is what we want. We want to experience horror the way it was meant to be experienced. Through horror, through mystery through through the unknown and that's what makes movies like this such an experience and i think it always brings me back and obviously our topic today is going to be a24 directors and ray and i are going to talk about some directors that we love that have worked with a24 multiple times now but what this really brings me back to is when the trailer for robert eggers the lighthouse was released and i feel like that is the perfect example of a Hollywood trailer that I want. Really vague imagery with great sound design, great, obviously that movie has great cinematography, but just the way it's pieced together, it was designed so well to pique your interest, but give virtually nothing away about the movie that you're gonna watch. And that's what I want more from, from Hollywood in general. Well, I guess you brought up the lighthouse. Why don't we, why don't we jump into this thing? Yeah, absolutely. So Ray and I are going to talk about today random directors that we just want to bring up from a24 and obviously it's not going to be like elongated conversations or list format it's mostly just going to be ray and i going back back and forth talking about these filmmakers but i do think it's a really good foot to jump off of that we just get it out of the way right now and mention our friend uh, our friend our 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 icon of a24 what ray and i know him personally mr uh, robert eggers i feel like we would be doing a disservice if we didn't at least mention robert eggers because he's a, a filmmaker that has really impacted both ray and I's lives very significantly with his work. I feel like he really kind of redefined what I feel like modern cinema can be. He truly is like pushing the envelope as far as like when you watch a movie like The Lighthouse, he's using older camera equipment. He's very much like a hands-on director. Like people are saying that when he was filming The Northman, that he was very into making sure the costume design was accurate, making sure that all these things, the, the machine kind of was moving in the correct direction. And I feel like that it just speaks volumes in all of his work, especially his two A24 films, The Witch and the Lighthouse, that he really is a person that is so about attention to detail, but also bringing his vision to life in the best way possible. And I think it's funny, Ray, and I wanted to bring this up, is that I read an article recently that he literally beats himself up still over the witch because Anya Taylor-Joy had her ears pierced. And he said that because of that time period, those people would have never had their ears pierced. And that still eats him alive that when he watches the movie that he can notice where her ear piercings are. And I think that truly is the sign of just an amazing filmmaker. I hadn't even noticed that myself. I, I it's, it's interesting interesting seeing someone like Eggers show up because I feel like every time we look we watch some of these period pieces we get like there's obvious things that like that would have never happened in that era but he really goes out of his way to be as authentic as possible and that that speaks volumes to what he's doing I mean it's no secret why he has been so successful among 
among people. But at the same time, it makes sense why so many people don't like him either. I mean, I've seen so many people praise the Northmen, but then I've also seen so many people just say how awful it was or how terrible it was. And I think it's because he tries to be so authentic that it could be alienating to some people. And that's okay. I understand that some of these things are not for everybody. I mean, The Lighthouse, it's still a movie that I won't just recommend widely to people. I have to really know who I'm talking to before I can recommend a film like The Lighthouse or The Witch. Even The Northman is his most accessible movie, but there's still quite a handful of people that I wouldn't recommend The Northman to. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still an art house film. Eggers is an art house filmmaker, but I feel like he just creates these immersive environments that it's so hard not to just fall in love with because of just how immersive the settings are. I feel like every single one of his movies feels like a really good book. Like anytime I watch one of his movies, I'm just like, oh my God, like I just want to dive into this world and stay in this world. I'll be really interested too, because I know Focus Features took a chance on Eggers with The Northman. And so he left A24, but The Northman didn't make a whole lot of money. I don't even think it ended up making its budget back. So I'm really curious because I know they finally cemented the details about the Nosferatu film with Willem Dafoe. And I didn't see anything about the production company, but I'm curious if Focus Features will take another chance on him or if he'll come back to A24 because of the amount of things that he's done for them. Because, I mean, he really is like one of the household names when people think of A24. I'm pulling up the reception of his films, and I mean, The Witch was made with $4 million and it made $40 million, and The Lighthouse was made with $11 million and it made $18 million. But then The Northman was made with almost $90 million and it only made $68 million, which is his highest grossing movie because of its budget. You know, it didn't do so well. So it's interesting because you can see the trend of him becoming more successful as you become more successful you're giving more budget and obviously you have to make that budget back and he, he couldn't make this one back. So I don't know. I... It's sad because I feel like he is a, you know, one of my favorite directors, talented. He surrounds himself with great talent and he goes out of his way to make sure that his films are as culturally and as accurately as possible. But you just finding the crowd for that is is hard. And that's what I love about A24 giving these directors that wouldn't otherwise make it in your Universals and Disney Studios. You know, they get a chance to shine in these in these small independent studios. And I'm glad A24, Neon, and other places like that exist to give these these filmmakers more of a, of a platform. Well, speaking of Disney, I think it'd be fun to talk about an A24 filmmaker who's worked with A24 a couple of times, but has also worked with Disney, and that is Mr. David Lowry. I freaking love David Lowry. Yeah. Yeah, he made Pete's Dragon with Disney, which I always find really fascinating that he did that. But he made two absolutely spectacular films with A24, and that is A Ghost Story and The Green Knight, which I just got my Green Knight tattoo if you follow me on Instagram. I'm a huge fan of that movie as well as I know Ray loves that movie. Uh, But one of the things I really respect about David Lowry is is that... uh, It's his mustache? Yeah, it's 100% his mustache. So he also made The Old Man and the Gun. uh, And I was looking through David Lowry's filmography, and I guess he's he just finished up doing the live-action Peter Pan and Wendy movie for Disney+, Plus, which is like, this dude is just all over the place. But what I respect 
about him so much, especially with his two A24 films that he's made, is that it just seems like he kind of does whatever he wants. And that's the filmmakers that I can really respect. And I feel like, you know, with these big budget movies like Pete's Dragon or this Peter Pan movie, that he constantly goes back and makes things that he wants because I feel like a ghost story is really like a beautiful art house piece that speaks volumes and The Green Knight is an amazing fantasy film that's also incredibly intimate and I feel like it's it's really focused on its costume design and its set design but it also has a really amazing message to it and it's just something I really respect with him as a filmmaker. But if I'm being honest though in, in the world of soulless Disney live action remake Pete's Dragon is one of the better ones that they have. So that's why I think in the world of all of these soulless remakes that Disney is, you know, pushing, Pete's Dragon is definitely one of the better ones. And I'll, I'll be excited to watch that Peter Pan one. Well, and I, I'm looking forward to Peter Pan because Peter Pan was like a really incredible movie to me when I was a kid. I know that it's like incredibly problematic when you look back at the way that Native Americans are portrayed in it. There's a lot of stuff in it that's not good. But when I grew up, Peter Pan was really important to me. And I think it'll be really interesting to see Jude Law as Captain Hook and Jim Gaffigan as Mr. Smee. <laughs> that's going to be an absolutely wild uh, experience to see those two in that movie. I don't know. Some of these live action Disney movies as of late with the exception of like you're saying Pete's Dragon haven't been great but I hope that that Lowry works with A24 again and I'm sure that he'll be compelled to because I feel like when you see the reception that people had to The Green Knight and even to A Ghost Story those seem to both be films that people really praise highly in the A24 catalog. Oh, and then he, you know, he has an incredible mustache that needs to be respected. He looks kind of like, uh, oh, Tom Hardy in that Bronson movie. <laughs> yeah, he, he does. Like, he, he looks pretty close to that. But no, I've, I've watched a couple interviews with him, and he seems like just a really cool, down-to-earth person. And I love his movies. I think that he's really talented, and he's a director that I want to keep an eye out on, for sure. Well, he... I I don't know if you have read this, but he is working on this. He has begun filming a movie called The Oak, Thorn, and The Old Rose of Love, which he said is like a spiritual sequel to The Green Knight. Oh, and the yes. Same, you know, and then he says that the same photography team that he used for The Green Knight is going to be used for this one. I don't know if it's an A24 production, but I mean, he's not done making art house films for sure. So according to the Wikipedia page, it's not currently marked as an A24 produced film, but that can always change. Obviously, like that's not, A24 can pick something up way after it's been produced. So there's no really, there's no really way to know, but it'll be interesting to see that when it comes out. So, well, I feel like as we're talking about some of these filmmakers that are, you know, breaking out and, and, and just growing and becoming and influencing because I feel like people like Eggers and Lowry are really influencing things. I mean, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the weirdest but probably most exciting things that are coming out of A24, which is the Daniels. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes. I And honestly, I am beyond thrilled for the Daniels because I don't know if you read in the news a couple weeks ago, the Daniels ended up getting a like five or six film contract with Universal or one of these enormous production companies to make five or six films 
And that just goes to show you that, like, obviously they won't be working with A24 in the near future, but, like, they took a budget that A24 gave them, which I feel like, if I remember correctly, the budget for Everything Everywhere All at Once was relatively modest still, I feel like. I don't think it was, like, over... So it was a $25 million budget, and it made $100.8 million, which I think to this day is probably one of the highest grossing a24 films yet but but i agree i i think that it's really cool with the daniels to see these two filmmakers that are creating these really unique and strange movies like between that swiss army man and even the death of dick long which like is one of the weirdest most bizarre movies i've ever seen like knowing that a production company was willing to give these guys a chance and that they made a movie that i feel like truly blurs the line between independent art house filmmaking and like what's accessible to big audiences because i feel like people that are normally like parts of general audiences went to go see that movie and loved it because there was something in it for everyone and i am so excited for the daniels i feel like they deserve it they do and hopefully you know we we see them not go away from their weird because I think that's almost what makes it so endearing that they can take these really weird abstract films like a film about a farting corpse and give it heart and meaning. See all the phenomenon that happened this year with everything everywhere all at once where I was talking to even my quote unquote casual moviegoer co-workers went and saw it you know so it's definitely a movie that reached a wider audience that normally would have and I feel like the Daniels are really striking a balance between weird and art house and accessible and mainstream which is kind of a nice little brush to see because hopefully that leads people to check out more art house movies that have a really powerful message 100 percent, and i think that what you're saying is really relevant because i think the thing that makes the daniels so incredible is that yes their movies are really bizarre there's a lot of really strange imagery there's a lot of like really gross out humor mixed in with some really subtle and nuanced humor but i think the important part of all of the daniels films is that there is this really like central and beautiful human message and none of their movies despite being really over the top take away from the fact that those movies have really impactful messages like i think of like uh someone like judd apatow who throughout his career he's done like movies that mix like gross out comedy with familial dynamic stories and they work for the most part but like at the end of the movie i'm like oh i casually enjoyed it it's never like an i'm obsessed with a judd apatow movie normally i i enjoy them i just don't think they're anything super spectacular but i feel like the familial dynamics in the daniels movies are so well conveyed and done so amazingly that there's elements in i feel like in everything everywhere all at once especially there are elements in Michelle Yeoh's character there's uh, and Kei Huey Kwan's character and their daughter's character like there's elements in each one of those characters that I think we can pull out of ourselves and put into those characters specifically that just resonate with everyone there's something you can get out of any and all of those characters that everyone can sort of feel inside and out and that's that's what I think is so impressive about their filmography specifically is just like they they really have that familial dynamic 
nailed down. And I, I just think it's so impressive. Absolutely. And I feel like that's something that we're starting to see an in, you know, uh, an incline on to see some of these weirder, more thought-provoking films starting to kind of creep up there with the mainstream culture. I mean, the, the next director I was going to bring up oh, used to have the highest grossing movie until everything, everywhere, all at once. And that's Ari Aster with Hereditary, which made... El- you know, 80 million, which is still pretty impressive, you know, extremely impressive for an A24 production. One of the things about Ari Aster that's so incredible is like, he seems to be really honing in on like what horror was in like the the 70s and 80s. I mean, I know a lot of people have thrown out things like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and a lot of those titles when talking about Ari Aster. Because, I mean, if you look at Hereditary, Hereditary is a horrifying movie but it's so much more of the horror is like real life familial horror it's like things that could happen to people obviously not everyone's gonna have like a demon take over their child like that element's not gonna happen but for the first like hour plus of that movie it's this really gritty and just like dramatic family film that really makes you like i felt so much for Tony Collette's character, I felt so much for Alex Wolf's character. Like everyone that was in that movie, I felt horrible for the husband. Like you're just watching that family slowly be torn apart by real life circumstances, and then when the supernatural elements take part and and start to come into play, it all makes sense. And it's like I think Ari Aster is one of those people that understands that real life is horror in a way and that real life can be horrific. And he combines those supernatural elements into it so well. And same with Midsommar. I feel like that movie, like we I think we talked about it on the last episode or we mentioned it off podcast, but those shots of Florence Pugh's sister at the beginning of Midsummer, like those are etched into my brain. Like just so horrible and awful. And it's like that's some of the most horrific parts of that movie. And it's just so impressive. I'm really excited to see what he manages to do with Joaquin Phoenix. I feel like he is not trying to make horror movies. He just understands the horror of real life, like you were talking about. With hereditary though, when I when I recommend people hereditary i always tell them hey going into this film you need to understand one thing is this movie isn't a jump scare fest this movie will take its time and maybe for the first hour and 45 minutes you might be thinking to yourself i'm watching like a family drama it will it it will progress beyond that but it's like you need to understand the movie takes its time to really let us know about the characters and what they're about and what they're going through. So you it, it's a you, you need to be patient with this film. And if you're patient, it'll have an incredible payoff. And something, a fun fact about Hereditary, it was actually, I gotta tell you this story. So this Hereditary was filmed here in Utah. The house is up in Park City. I remember watching Hereditary for the first time and there's that scene where Tony Collette meets that, um, that old lady in a parking lot um, right after the grief counseling class. And I was like, that parking lot looks familiar. I've been there before and lo and behold yeah it was like it's some like little resort place and up in park city here in utah and it, it here's a little fun fact about that movie this old lady this so uh, there's somehow like a pretty big spanish community here and by i mean by spanish i mean from spain and one of my friends from spain he was talking to me about this this lady that they're friends with. She is an aspiring actor. She tries to take roles, like small roles here in um, in Utah because of this film, Sundance Film Festival. And she accepted a role as grieving lady. That's all she was. And when she showed up to, to the film, they're like, we're going to be filming 
the scene where it's like a grief counseling group and you're going to be grieving so you're going to be crying it's like we wanted to be in spanish though can you do it in spanish she's like yeah so she she's like i sat down and i shot this film this part where i'm like sitting there crying in spanish about um a dead relative of mine and that's all you know five ten minutes i was there for like maybe like an hour they used like five minutes of my of my part and i left not knowing what movie i was uh, i was you know, reading for. And something you understand, this lady is like a really like conservative Christian lady. So when the movie was shot, they were like, hey, here's a free pass for you and your family to come watch the the premiere of the movie. And she had no clue what movie she had read for. She just did this part and went home and was mortified when she watched the movie. That is I I can't even that is amazing but yeah that just that just goes to show like uh, there's so many times where people watch it's so funny when you watch uh interviews with actors and actresses that talk about like their film careers and there's so many of them that are like yeah I did like a two scene part in this movie and they barely even remember what the experience was like that would be wild to see that film after knowing nothing about it yeah especially because she's like this like really nice conservative Christian woman has no idea she's doing a movie about like a satanic cult. That is, that is wonderful. Yeah, I I really love Ari Aster. I listened to the uh, A twenty four podcast that him and Robert Eggers did together, and he just seems like a really amazing human being that is like super talented and incredible. And I am like, I'm always gonna be down for whatever he puts out. Another thing, just real quick, that I want to point out, and this is between. You know, Ari Aster and David Lowry do this, so I'll talk about them. For their films, they... Like, for example, for Hereditary, he used Colin Stetson to do the music. Um, and he is just this, like, saxophonist, multi-instrumentalist from Montreal who has been a collaborator with Arcade Fire, Bon Iver. It's, you know, he's collaborated with Cult of Luna. So he's, like, this small, like, multi-instrumentalist is attached to the indie and hardcore scene and then you know then Ari Aster used Bobby Krillick from the Hacks and Cloak which is like this independent like dark ambient film and then you have David Lowry constantly using Daniel Hart from like this indie dark pop band Dark Rooms so I love that they keep using these like smaller scale like you know artists that are they have roots within the indie you know within the indie scene to score these films and giving these like small independent artists a chance to shine as composers is also something really cool that that both Ari Aster and David Lowry do that I'm really really impressed by that is really impressive honestly and talking about filmmakers that were impressed by Ray I have to bring up one of my favorite filmmakers that I know you still have not seen a movie from, but I have to bring up Yorgos Lanthimos. I knew this who was is coming Honestly, up. I think Yorgos Lanthimos is next to Robert Eggers, probably the most exciting filmmaker that is working today. I think that his movies are so unique and just like similarly to what we said about Ari Aster, like understanding like familial dynamic. Yorgos Lanthimos has this way of like, 
His characters are almost stripped of emotion in a really strange way where everything is really deadpan. And I think it's almost done intentionally to where people can put themselves in the shoes of these characters. But his movies are all so like viscerally, emotionally impactful in a way that like I, I don't think a lot of directors can do. Like if you look at a film like Killing of a Sacred Deer, the, the movie is like Colin Farrell is this surgeon who he's married to Nicole Kidman, he has these two kids. He he starts having this kid show up at his office and he doesn't know who he is. And it's that, uh, it's Barry Keoghan who is going to be the Joker in the next Batman movie. Oh, he was also in Dunkirk. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. And he was also in The Green Knight, funny oh, enough. Oh, that's everything. right. Yeah. Um, and he keeps showing up and he plays creepy so well. But Colin Farrell doesn't understand why he shows up. Well, one day he shows up there and he essentially tells Colin Farrell that he did surgery on his dad and that the surgery that he did on his dad killed his dad. And he says, I'm going to put a curse on your family and you have to kill either your wife, your son, or your daughter, or they're going to get this debilitating sickness that takes over them. And you're going to slowly have to watch your entire family die. And if you kill me, it's still going to happen. So the whole movie is Colin Farrell essentially having to try to decide which one of his family members that he's going to kill. And it's like a really sadistic story, but it's also hilarious. Like there's something about his kids get to the point where they can't even walk anymore and they're like dragging themselves by their hands up and down the stairs. And there's something about the way he films it that almost makes you laugh while at the same time you're being really disturbed. And he's just amazing at balancing those emotions in the film. Uh, the Lobster is one of my favorite movies ever made. And I think that movie balances that comedy and the drama really well. And obviously Yorgos Lanthimos with The Favorite, he got nominated for multiple Academy Awards for that movie. He left A24 and went to Searchlight Pictures. And I was just looking this up, Ray. His newest film is going to be called Poor Things. And it's going to come out in 2023 the plot of the movie is upon drowning herself to escape her abusive husband a woman has her brain replaced with the brain of her unborn child that sounds like an incredible uh, plot line for a movie and the fact that searchlight pictures is still giving him the funding to do that after the favorite it's exciting to see someone who his first two films were shot in greece where he's from the lobster was his first american film which was really like the uh a24 taking a chance on him and saying like hey we're gonna give you a shot then the killing of a sacred deer came out both of those movies were very successful and then searchlight Pictures says hey this guy's really unique he's making crazy movies and just just to tell you, the favorite was shot with a $15 million budget and made $95 million. I don't know if you've seen The Favorite. You haven't because you haven't seen any of his stuff. The production design is amazing in that and he shot the entire movie with natural light. So there is no lighting equipment. Everything is with candles and it's his cinematography is amazing. I, I, I know you haven't seen any of his stuff, but I have a feeling that like as soon as you watch one of his movies, you are going to be so enamored with his stuff that you're just going to want to binge through every one of his films and the lobster and the killing of a sacred deer which are his two a24 films are probably two of my favorites in his whole catalog so it's it's definitely worth 
watching his stuff. He's just such an amazing filmmaker. He's a really down-to-earth guy. Uh, watching interviews with him, he just seems like someone you'd want to like get a beer with and talk to. Like Just like a really cool, unique human being. And I'm glad A24 takes chances on these really strange directors that make these really incredible movies because Yorgos is someone... I've seen his movies like five times a piece and I get more out of them every time I watch them. I'm excited. Yeah, you talk about him a lot and I just... I keep saying I'm going to check it out and I just... I don't know what it is that I just don't, but it's not for any other reason that I just haven't, but I need to change that. Where should I start? Honestly, I think with one of his two A24 films, I'd start with either The Lobster or Killing of a Sacred Deer, and that'll just really give you an idea. Um, his first, the first two films I, uh, in his catalog that everyone really knows, which are Dogtooth and uh, Alps, are both in Greek. So when you watch those movies, they're subtitled, which I thought at first, like watching one of his movies in Greek, that like the the deadpan dialogue might not resonate the same way because you know sometimes I mean you're someone who you know you your first language wasn't English and so transitioning I imagine like even understanding like comedic delivery in English compared to like in Spanish was weird like a weirder transition because the way we tell jokes is so different and it's like in Greek I thought like oh will that be a weird transition for me not knowing that language and it honestly resonates so well because of how amazing his acting Actors are with their facial expressions and bodily movements, and all his movies are amazing. But I feel like, especially with someone like you, who you're really coming to appreciate Colin Farrell as an actor, actor so much. He's in both The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer, and his performances are incredible in both. Movies that, like, similarly to what you said about Robert Eggers, they're not going to be for everyone because they're very weird. They're very like. It's kind of almost like a mix of somewhere between Wes Anderson and Edgar Wright with the humor. Very, like, niche. Like, very... It's not going to be for everybody. You get that. Like, Wes Anderson and Edgar Wright aren't for everyone. But, like, it's it's sort of a blend of both of those. Very deadpan, like Wes Anderson. But also, like Edgar Wright, there's a lot that has to do with the way the camera moves for comedic timing. So, if you like any of the stuff that I've just ex- described, you'll love Yorgos Lanthimos. That sounds incredible. Actually, The Lobster has been one that I been wanting to see for as long as you've been talking about it and i don't know what it is that i just haven't that i just i need to change that because that totally sounds up my alley in every way possible that was my very long recommendation for yorgos lanthimos i just love him so much yeah he he seems to have a lot of um a lot of love online for sure Oh, for sure. Well, I have another uh, director that we can talk about, Ray, that, that we brought up uh, together. And I know you've only seen one of his movies, but one that I think we both can get excited and hope that he makes more with A24, and that's Mike Mills. I, I think, you know, I'm when you brought it up on the underrated episode, I was so excited that you brought Mike Mills up because I loved uh, Come On, Come On. I thought that it was just absolutely amazing. And obviously I'm a huge fan of 20th Century Woman. And I I just think that he is one of the most talented filmmakers I've seen in a long time. And I think it's bonkers that the man has only made four movies. He's only made four? So he's only made four feature length films. And the rest of the stuff that he's done is uh, short films. But I was going online and he's done probably like... 
20 uh, music videos, and the last three music videos he made were in 2019 for The National, which is probably why they worked on the score for Come On, Come On. Oh, they must have, well, he must have shot all those music videos that they did for um, I'm Easy to Find. Yep, that's what it looks like it is. But yeah, he he's just, there's something about the way that he makes movies that like Ray brought it up when we talked about come on, come on. And I talked about it a little bit with 20th century woman, but I feel like he just understands people in a way that not a lot of filmmakers do where like none of his characters feel like caricatures. They feel like literal people. Like when I was watching come on, come on and Ray, I think you said it like brilliantly in the episode, but that relationship between Joaquin and his nephew didn't feel like a scripted relationship. It felt like real people. Yeah, if you would have told me like, oh, that's really Joaquin Phoenix's nephew, it would have been like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's just the the way they conveyed that uh, relationship was so amazing. And there's something about his cinematography too that it's like really minimalistic, but it's also really gorgeous. Like 20th Century Woman is shot very similarly to Come On, Come On in that like, it's almost like that Wes Anderson style where the camera is normally like locked in place unless it's a very specific scene. Like I think one of the only handheld shots you get and come on come on is that scene where Joaquin is walking through that really large group of people when they're in New Orleans and he like starts to grab at his heart and starts to fall over at that one point I think that's really one of the few handheld shots in that whole movie and I think with Mike Mills being a um, a director that focuses really heavily on like the reality of life and because he he's done documentary in his life really wants to capture things in the most real essence that he possibly can. There was something to be said about that film. I also like how he takes the chance on just non-actors, just real kids during those interviews and he actually kept them Uh, i thought that added a layer of authenticity to the film where it felt more personable because you know you're not watching some brad pitt type doing a talking head these are real kids with real you know not non-scripted thoughts that are things that they are actually passionate and care for and they didn't have to memorize these lines to convey that message and i i love those scenes of joaquin interviewing all these kids and just it just makes it feel more more intimate it does it just has like that really snapshot of life feel that i think we all love in movies i feel like that it makes it so impactful and come on come on is one that similarly to what you said in our episode i it just left me thinking after that movie was over for so long and in a good way like, it's really thought-provoking in a way that, like, you perceive relationships and the people around you and how you communicate with other people. And I just really love Mike Mills. And I actually just saw, I think this is funny, he is actually married to the director Miranda July, who has made a lot of really amazing independent films as well. So, you know, got to pair that talent up. Uh, I always find that interesting when talented people like Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> both who have worked with a tw- both who have worked with a twenty four. That's right. <laughs> Comically enough, um, but I want to really quickly bring up Ray because I'm going to bring up another director that I don't think that you've seen any of his films, but another director that has really impacted my life personally and that I really care about his movies a lot is Sean Baker. 
And Sean Baker has worked with A24 twice now on The Florida Project and Red Rocket, which if you have not seen either one of those films, Ray, I 100% need you to watch them because I know you will love them. I haven't seen them, no, neither neither one. Yeah, and I just want to say really quickly, and I won't dwell on it for too long so that we can talk about one that we've both seen their movies, but one of the things I love so much about Sean Baker is that similarly to what we were just talking about with Mike Mills and capturing that snapshot of life essence, and even like what we were talking about with Last Black Man in San Francisco uh, in the last episode, Sean Baker looks at real life from the perspective of people typically from lower income areas or like people that come from backgrounds doing jobs that aren't really well respected. So like when you look at the Florida project, the Florida project is told through the lens of these really small kids living at this hotel right outside of Disney World in Kissimmee, Florida. The little girl's mom, she wasn't even an actress. She was a model that he found online and thought that she would fit the role so well. And she is incredible in that movie. And Willem Dafoe's in it as the owner of the hotel. And it's a really heartbreaking film because you see the beauty and the innocence of life through a child's lens immediately paralleled with the horrors of adulthood. And, like, there's a scene where her mom guises that they're going to go, like, uh, shopping for stuff in downtown Florida And she ends up, like, robbing this family of their Disney World passes at one point. And is, like, flipping them to sell them so that they can have enough money to live. And it's like Disney is perceived as this, like, greatest place on Earth and happiest place on Earth. When, like, literally five minutes outside of the park, you have this horrible poverty. And you have these people who are literally struggling day to day to live their lives. And that movie is just one of the most brilliant films I've ever seen. And then just last year, Red Rocket was released, which is about Simon Rex, who's normally known as a comedic actor, being this guy who used to be a porn star. And he moves back in with his ex-wife and and her mom. And it's just about him. Like, he ends up starting to sell weed with his old, like, high school drug dealer. And, like, he's really just this burnout who manipulates other people and he meets this like 18 year old girl who like he starts flirting with her and starts seeing her behind his ex-wife's back when his him and his ex-wife seem to start be building their relationship up and it really just explores this like underbelly and gross part of texas and it's like the interesting element of both of those films is a lot of times when filmmakers look at like lower income areas or like areas like that they're they're it's kind of like a head shake or like saying something negative about them it's viewed through such a neutral lens that i think a lot of filmmakers don't have the capability of doing and Sean Baker just does that brilliantly and he has two films prior to those that were non-A24 he has a movie called Starlet that's also about a porn star and then he has a movie called Tangerine that is about two transgender prostitutes though they live in New York City and Starlet I think is LA so he's kind of explored all different parts of the United States but really kind of, you know, looking at this lower income impoverished area through a much more neutral lens or through a lens of like, hey, despite how much people in America view these people as like second class citizens or not as good as other people, that he puts it through the lens of like these people actually matter, they have an opinion, like their lives are important. And I think that's a really unique perspective for a filmmaker to take. And I think if you watched some Sean Baker movies, Ray, that you'd really love them, especially Red Rocket. Red Rocket is a really great balance of drama and comedy 
Florida Project is much more of a drama, but also like the kids in it are so adorable and they're great actors and it feels almost documentary like and Willem Dafoe's in it and I know you love him, uh, but he's a filmmaker that has really impacted my life and I think that uh, he's another one in A24's catalog that I hope to see because Red Rocket just came out A24. I hope to see whatever he makes next to come out through A24 as well. I seen the Red Rocket, the movie, just as I'm wandering around through the stores and I'll see the, you know, the artwork of of the guy, the, the naked dude covering himself with what it looks to be like a the donut. Yeah, the, so the girl that he ends up getting involved with who's much younger than him, she works at a donut shop. So it makes the cover even more brilliant. He's such a talented filmmaker and he's someone who is very much about like the preservation of film and keeping film alive, the importance of physical media. Like, he's a huge advocate for all that stuff, and that makes me like him even more. But his movies are so incredibly unique, and I would highly recommend you check them out. All right, Ray, I'm ready to hear another one from you. Who do you got for me? This is someone that, like, we've... I've only seen one movie of theirs, but they have made a name for themselves, and... They proved to the world that, well, no, I should say they reminded the world that Adam Sandler can act like a pro. Ah, uh, yes! <laughs> so, of course, I'm, I'm, it's the Safties! <laughs> <laughs> They're really talented directors, and I have actually seen both Uncut Gems and Good Time. I've never seen, I think they have a, another movie called, like, heaven knows what or something like that that i still haven't seen i don't i don't have any idea what it's called but uh i haven't seen that movie but i have seen both uncut gems and uh good time and they yeah it's called heaven knows what i cannot believe i remembered that and they also have another movie called daddy long legs that apparently was picked up by criterion recently so that's exciting news but yes they are super talented they proved that Adam Sandler is an incredible actor because between that and Punch Drunk Love and even Rain Over Me, Adam Sandler has acting chops. People just don't know how to use him correctly or he just doesn't know how to use himself with Happy Madison Productions. But yes, exactly. But one of the things that's impressive, and I know, Ray, you know this from Uncut Gems, but like from Good Time as well, the Safties have this way of building like anxiety suspense. Unlike a lot of filmmakers, I don't think I've seen a film in a while that sort of builds that anxiety tension like Uncut Gems does. Well, and I think something to be said about the Safties, I haven't, so I haven't seen Good Times, but I have seen trailers and I know enough about that movie. And just watching the trailers for that movie and then watching Uncut Gems, there is this like, I don't know what it is about the Safties, the way that they shoot their movies, that their movies look dirty. They look gross. Like, so like you're almost feeling gross watching this thing because their movies just feel so gross. So like, I don't even know how to explain it. They just feel very lived in for sure. But also like, this is a world I wouldn't want to be a part of, but you can't look away either. But you also can't look away. Oh, exactly. What It was so funny. So when I watched Uncut Gems the first time, I was watching it with Jess. And we were sitting on the couch watching it. And I think there was at least four times audibly that between me and her, we would both just say, like, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, it's like I love movies that, like, get you to the point where you just want to scream at the screen, like... Adam Sandler in that movie makes every horrible decision that he possibly could make until the third act. And I, I think that, like, it says something about a movie that can literally make your heart rate stay through the roof until the very end. But then you're, you're almost rooting for him. You're like, okay, 
He learned his lesson. We're good. Oh, no, no. Oh, wait. He Maybe he's picking up. No, no. Never mind. We're back. At the, and, you know, you just keep going back and forth. Oh, I know. And then I know that people, some people were, like, upset at what happens in the third act. But, honestly, I think it was inevitable. It was just a matter of time before something like that happened. Well, I kept calling it out throughout the movie. I'm like, this dude's going to get himself killed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. It's like... He finally gets to the point where he has the ability to make that score he's always wanted to. But the thing is, is if he was able to continue to keep going, he was just going to put himself in the same situation again later. Yeah, it was inevitable. It's it's one of those people like I I think that the this is how I win conversation that he has with Kevin Garnett in that scene is one of the best scenes in film in like the past 10 years when he's sitting there and he's like trying to rationalize in his own brain the reason why he does the things that he does and like that's the thing he strives for in life and despite the fact that he fucks his own life up consistently he continues to do it because it's all he knows yeah well, and then it's not just Adam Sandler like I feel like everyone talks about Adam Sandler's stupid choices but like even his girlfriend, like, getting his name tattooed on her butt. And, like... Oh, my God. <laughs> everyone yes. everyone around him is so slimy and so volatile. Let's not forget the amazing performance from Adele Dazeem in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Idina Menzel. I'm sorry. I, I had a John Travolta moment. <laughs> Oh, it's, no, you're going to start working with Fred Durst now. <laughs> oh, no, it was Adele Dazeem. No, I, uh, Idina Menzel actually does a really good job. She was probably the character I felt the worst for in the movie. Well, you know, she... I was like, God, your, hus- your husband's a piece <laughs> of shit. Like, I'm sorry, he really is. And it's like, the thing that's brilliant about Adam Sandler in that movie is he's so charismatic, it's impossible to not like him. You just... You just though he's a scumbag well you're rooting that's what i'm saying there's points where you're rooting for him yeah and you don't really have a reason to which makes it even funnier like there's not really a reason to root for him because he's a really bad person making horrible decisions but it's like because of his passion you almost feel like you have to well and then when he gets that score you're just like oh this is we're done this is oh oh well no never mind Oh, God, yeah. And, and uh, similarly, in Good Time, you know, that movie builds up a lot of anxiety suspense with uh, Robert Pattinson's character. And you're watching that, and it's just like he makes bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And you're like, God. And I watched an interview with the Safties, and they said they were obsessed with filmmakers in the 70s and 80s that, like, did did this thing where they always had, like, the the lovable idiot protagonist where it's like they're really obsessed with the guy who is fascinated with winning but consistently loses and that's clearly resonated throughout all of their films but i love the safties i will continue to be excited for whatever they make in their career whether it's with a24 or another company i don't know i think i'm going to continue to be anxious uh, whatever they make <laughs> for sure well i have at least one more director i want to mention ray and then i want to do something fun with you if you're okay with that Ooh. Should I go change into something more comfortable? If that makes you feel a little bit better, sure. I'm currently in my I'm currently in my oversized grown-ups 2 t-shirt right now. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah, I know it's it's the only thing I ever wear. So the one other filmmaker I want to bring up, which I know Ray that you have seen 
one of his films. I have seen all three of his films that he's made with A24, and that is Mr. Trey Edward Schultz, who made It Comes at Night, which Ray uh, Ray brought up in our underrated films episode, and he also made the film Waves and Krisha with A24. And the reason why I wanted to bring up Trey Edward Schultz and one of the things that impresses me so much with him is he is someone who has made three drastically different movies with A24 where Krisha is this like really hardcore family drama that is like really difficult to watch. It Comes at Night has that familial drama but it's much more suspense and building up that suspense of like what is happening, where is this movie going to go and then Waves is like a mixture of a familial drama with comedy, uh, there's like romance elements to it it's kind of split into two parts and I think that it's really impressive that you know there's a lot of these filmmakers that you and I have talked about throughout this episode that like like, with the exception of maybe David Lowry, that, like, stick to this, like, very similar style. Yes, you're going to get a Robert Eggers movie, or you're going to get a Yorgos Lanthimos movie, or a Sean Baker movie, and it might have a different plot, but it's going to have a similar feel. Trey Edward Schultz is one of those directors where, like, just aside from cinematography, his movies all feel very different. And that's something that's really impressive with a filmmaker when they can kind of step out of the box. And I think what's incredible is like Trey Edward Schultz, I believe Ray, is younger than me and you. Or it maybe maybe he's really young. Oh, so he was born so 1988. So he's two years older than me. But still, he's like really young for someone who's this successful. And um, he really got his his build up because when he made the film Krisha, he's related to Chris, the actress Krisha Fairchild who has been acting since like the early 90s and that entire movie is about her in a, in a way that's like obviously making stuff more fantastical but uh, it's really impressive that a guy who's that young has created so many amazing movies with A24 and uh, I, yeah, I'm just going to be excited for whatever he makes next. And despite the fact that I didn't think Waves was a perfect movie, I still respect it a lot about it. And Ray, with how much you love It Comes at Night, I think you should watch his other stuff. I think you'd really get into it. Hmm, I'm going to have to check that out because, yeah, It Comes at Night is the only one that I know. I will for sure have to do that. Well, do you have anyone else you'd like to mention before I jump into our little fun game I want to play with you real quick? Uh, ooh. Um... This one, I, I'll close with this one, and we don't have to spend too much time on, on this gentleman because um, we'll see where his trajectory goes. But, we, I, you know, I want to bring up Arlex Garland. You know, he did Ex Machina. And Hell Man. yeah. I love Ex Machina. I love Annihilation, even though it wasn't part of A24. And Man was cool for the most part. I had my issues with it, but it, it was still a very competently directed and movie and you know he's done a lot he has a lot of good writing credits to his name and he has that movie civil war that's going to be coming out on a 24 that i'm pretty stoked on because i'll still give him a shot you know he's i feel like even though man wasn't a perfect movie he had enough awesome material in that movie and with ex machina and annihilation under his belt like he's got my trust still in my opinion ex machina is one of the greatest science fiction films ever made uh, I honestly, I rewatched it recently because I'm doing the A24 series on my YouTube channel. So I'm watching all of uh, A24's filmography and I rewatched it for the first time in a while. And uh, the, mo the movie's just brilliant. I, I feel like it really like cements 
just how incredible of a storyteller that Garland is. Because I think he's a really talented writer. I feel like Men was the first case of, like, he was a little too on the nose. Uh, and I think that's where you and I both had problems with that movie is, like, some of it was really, really on the nose where, like, he could have pulled back a little bit more where Annihilation and Ex Machina are much subtler films. But that I, I'm in the same camp as you, I feel like, where I, he's a, such a talented filmmaker who has a lot of talent surrounding him. And I know, like, he co-wrote Sunshine, which is something you love. And also, uh, he was a writer on one of my favorite zombie films ever made, 28 Days Later. And, I, you know, he's he's a really talented writer. He's just a really talented human being. And so I look forward to this uh, Civil War movie. I mean, it has Kirsten Dunst in it, who, like, I love. So I feel like it'll be great, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and we don't have to spend much more time with him. It was just one that I wanted to bring out that I would have been remiss if we didn't give him a quick little shout-out. For sure. So that is Ray and I's uh, brief discussion on some of the directors we love that have been with A24 for a while. And Ray, I actually really like that format. I think that that was a lot of fun to kind of just talk about the stuff we like. And I feel like we made a lot of good points and hopefully pique some people's interest about movies that they might not uh, have otherwise checked out. Awesome. So Nate, I've lowered the lights. I've lit my candles. I put some berry white on the background. It's time for you to play with me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> So here we go. I, this is going to be a lot less sexy than, than you thought it was going to be. So we just had that conversation about directors that have worked with A24 multiple times. So now, sir, I want to ask you this question and this question alone, which is, let me know off the cuff. You don't have to think about it too hard. Who is a director that has only worked with A24 once that you would like to see work with the company again? Um, you know, I think this is what just, I forget his name, but the guy that just worked on The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Joe Talbot, yeah. I mean, he just needs to make more films, and if A24 is going to let him do it, then bring him over. I think that that would be a perfect pairing, because it seems like uh, he used the funds perfectly and did a great job, and I, honestly, even if it's not with A24, I just really want to see him make another movie, because I'm right there with you, like, holy shit, that movie was uh, incredible. Yeah, so I, the, for sure him, I mean, 1,000%, I want him to do more work in general, but, you know, like I said, A24 just allows these these people to do to really put their vision out there. So keep letting the man have his vision for crying out loud. Yes. And I'm sorry, like if I got you all worked up and that wasn't as uh, exciting of a thing, <laughs> thing as you thought it was going to be all you listeners out there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was gonna. It was gonna get. I thought it was gonna get Blondie situation. We we're gonna go from R-rated to NC-17 real quick. Oh, I'm so excited for that movie. Don't even get me started. Are you gonna ask me the same question? God. <laughs> I will, but I'll say it like this. I'll, I'll rephrase it. What is a director that has left A24 that you want them to come back? Honestly, that's that's a little bit more difficult because, I don't know, I feel like with A24 there's that creative freedom, but I feel like if there's a, 
you know, a filmmaker that has that voice and that any other production studio will like give them the time of day and say like, Hey, like you can have your creative freedom. Like my go-to answer would be like Yorgos. But the thing is, is like Yorgos proved with the favorite that he can still make amazing movies, quality films that don't sacrifice the, 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 uh, creative vision that the director wants. I guess if there's one that might be a little bit more underrated, and it's not like he's really gone out of the way to to make anything nuts, but I really loved Oz Perkins' film, The Black Coat's Daughter. He's made a couple other movies with uh, different production companies. Like, he made that film Gretel and Hansel, and he made another film called I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which was put out by Netflix. And I didn't like those movies as much as The Black Coat's Daughter, and I think maybe if he was back with A24, they might give him a little more creative freedom. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's difficult. I feel like that situation is more difficult. But my quick answer on the same question that I asked you is I'd like to see Bo Burnham direct another movie. Huh, yeah. Bo Burnham would be a good one for sure. And I think after... I, I loved 8th grade. Well, I think after the success of Inside, he has... Re- like, 8th grade was great and, you know, it was a good movie. Um, but I feel like with Inside, him doing absolutely everything alone has really has shown us that he's he transcends comedy. He goes beyond comedy at this point. And I would like to see Bo Burnham maybe do a drama, maybe a horror movie. I completely agree. And I think he has the range. Inside really proved that he has the capability of doing a bunch of a bunch of things that that create just like the, a really unique experience because it's hard to call inside just a comedy because there's so much to it. I feel like there's it's a drama too. Like there's a lot on it. And then the other director that I was going to mention that I'd love to come back with A24 and he is, but there is not a definitive date on the release of the film, but he's signed with A24 and that is Mr. Jonathan Glazer who made Under the Skin has a movie called Zone of Interest that's going to be coming out. And that is a, a film that I love quite a bit and I've talked about it before. And also uh, I was going to say Rose Glass, who made the film St. Maud that I loved, but she is also coming back to make another movie with A24. So looks like my dreams are coming true in a couple of those uh, respects. Nice. So while we're talking about this, what in the heck did you watch this weekend? Or over the week, I guess I should say. Well, as, as you all know, between uh, I've got some new people listening that have been watching my TikToks and what have you. I watch a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I typically watch a ton of movies and the big one I want to talk about is I watched this movie called I Love My Dad with Patton Oswald that was absolutely brilliant. It was also kind of a difficult watch for me uh, because I've talked a little bit on the podcast about like the weird familial dynamic I have. But Ray, just to give you a simple plot, it's a true story. The director is the lead actor where it's about this young kid who he has attempted to commit suicide and uh, he's like doing counseling, he's living with his mom and Patton Oswald is his dad and they have a really broken relationship and they haven't talked in a while and he tries to communicate with him and the, his therapist essentially tells him that the best thing to do is to cut his dad out. So Pat Oswald's at work, his boss is talking to him and he's like, hey, when my, uh, when my ex-wife 
got mad at me. I created a fake Facebook profile so I could stalk her. So the movie is Patton Oswald meets this waitress at a diner, finds out her name, goes on her Facebook, steals all her pictures, and starts to catfish his own son. And the movie is literally him catfishing his own son so that he can try to build a relationship with him again and it was very hard to watch because my dad is an incredibly gaslighting and horrible person and I was telling my siblings about it and they're like that's something our dad probably would attempt to do and it's heartwarming it's funny but it's also incredibly sad to know that this kid who directed the movie actually went through it but it's definitely worth your time like it was a really good movie well I actually there's two movies that I brought up that are going I have a feeling is going to make you really happy to hear that I finally checked out both of these movies. Yeah, I can't wait. So the first one that I watched, um, it's a it's a small movie that you may have heard of called Saint Maud. Yay! What did you think of Saint Maud? So full disclosure, I watched Saint Maud because the lead in that film is now playing Galadriel on the Lord of the Rings show, which I am thoroughly enjoying. She was incredible. That movie was so deep and so unsettling and so that was a great horror movie because I feel like I am no longer like scared by your typical like monster or zombie or vampire creature. But when I see a movie that addresses mental health, loneliness, isolation, all of these like really like mental health issues being addressed through the lens of horror, it is so unsettling. And, you know, this movie, I was with it. I thought it was going in one direction. And then so many things happen after she, you know, punches the lady. And the movie takes so many twists and turns and and I'm not going to say it, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. The last three seconds of that movie changed the entire film in the last three seconds. It's brilliant. It truly is, uh, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating explorations of the effect that religion has on people. And uh, whether, however you want to look at that through the director's lens, but I feel like you're looking at a person who is in an incredibly emotionally fragile state who gets to a point where like even the person who she's taking care of is like, yeah, you can have your faith, you can have your religion, but like you also still need to be your own person. Like, you can't just let it consume you. And I found that that was a really fascinating thing. But, oh, my God, one of the scenes in that movie that killed me was when she put the nails in her shoes and was walking around with those. And also, I'm going to go ahead and jump out. I'm going to be Ray for a moment here. The Adam Janota Bozowski score is incredible. The score to that movie really elevates the entire film, in my opinion. I bought the Mondo score before it sold out. I'm so happy that I got a copy of it. I'm so upset that I had I, I don't have that score, and I'm going to have to go on the hunt for it for sure. And if you're going to mention two movies, I want to mention another one real quick. That I watched Park Chan-wook's Thirst, and that might be one of my new favorite vampire movies I've ever seen. It's it's literally, Ray, like it is something you would absolutely love. It's about a uh, a Catholic priest who is his. he works at this church with his dad, and 
he gets he volunteers for this experiment that like the, there's this horrible disease that's plaguing people and everyone who has gone to volunteer for it has died and they don't know what's wrong so he goes there and it causes you to break out in these like horrible boils and rashes and he dies while he's there and they do a blood transfusion on him and it turns him into a vampire and it ends up turning into like a romantic comedy and it is brilliant it's one of my favorite movies I've watched and I don't even know how long but dude there's a scene really early on because like he's really religious because his dad has turned him into this really religious person and as soon as he finds out that he's a vampire that has to drink blood he tries to kill himself and he jumps off the roof of his building and hits this car and he just says damn it because <laughs> he can't die and it's it is literally like Oh, it's wonderful, Ray. You just need to watch it. Park Chan-wook is a genius. Korean cinema is where it's at. So what is the other film that you watched? Because I'm really excited you saw St. Maud. Well, you'll be even more excited that I finally saw On the Count of Three. Oh, I'm so glad you finally saw On the Count of Three. What did you think of it? I hope that you loved it as much as I did. It was brilliant. Also, like, I know they play this for laughs, and I was legitimately, like, laughing out loud during the scene. But there's also something as music nerds that was so powerful where the the other guy's like, I am not listening to Papa Roach on my last day on Earth. I know. I loved that scene so much. I actually, um, I need to watch it still, but um, Jared Carmichael, the director and the lead actor in the movie, uh, he did a stand-up comedy special that people are loving that was produced by Bo Burnham. And uh, I, I need to see it because it won a whole bunch of awards and he's incredibly talented. And I think that's funny to, to talk about them because both him and Christopher Abbott are working on the next Yorgos Lanthimos movie. So that's exciting. Yeah, he, well, I feel like that movie, there was something about that movie that was so like, you know, if you, and you know, I, I know there's a lot of people that suffer from mental health, but if you're like open about it, if you're like, and like you and I are pretty open about the stuff that we deal with, there were so many moments that felt so familiar, you know, like even that scene where he's listening to Last Resort by Papa Roach, and he was like, it's a song about suicide, man. And he was like, you're not supposed to listen to what you're feeling. That's cheesy. Yeah, <laughs> I love that so much. I, I And, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I've looked into Jared Carmichael a little bit. And that um, that special that he did called Rathaniel, um, it's a lot about his own personal struggle of him coming out as gay to his family. And uh, I feel like that obviously you know doesn't come through in the movie like as as a plot arc about you know struggling with like being a closeted homosexual but like that idea of like mental health and mental illness and not feeling comfortable with who you are is like definitely a theme that resonates heavy in that movie and it's definitely one of the films similarly to what you said when you finished last black man in san francisco that was a film this year that really like left a mark on me when I was done watching it. Well, and then you have that thing. I'm not gonna get into spoilers, but you have that that last shot when they're in that open field, and then you have that last moment, and then you cut to the scene of the other friend. I'm not gonna say what's happening, but you know what's happening. It's just this the last maybe like two minutes of the movie is just silence. It was so, oh, it destroyed me. 
Honestly, the end of that movie destroyed me. But I'm so glad that you finally got around to watching that movie because it's, I think if I was looking at my list, that's still probably like top three or four of the year for me. It was, it was a great film. I really enjoyed it and I'm glad that I finally got around to seeing it. Well, I am too. So that's Ray and I's discussion of the things that we've watched recently. And I really quickly, Ray has got some exciting announcements to make here before the episode's over. But before he gets into those announcements, I just really quickly want to tell you guys what we're going to talk about next week. And this is going to be the transition into Ray and I getting excited for the month of October, getting ready for spooky season. We're going to talk about some of our favorite A24 horror films. You know, there for a second when, I, when you were like, I just want to tell you guys real quick about... Squarespace and Squarespace. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, Squarespace, if you're out there and you need somebody to read ads, we're here for it. We'll do it. Actually, I'd prefer if it was like Shudder or like, you know, Woodford Reserve Bourbon or something like that. Hit me up. I'm, I'm fine reading advertisements. But yes, we're going to watch, we're going to talk about A24 horror movies. Ray and I are really excited about it. And now I'm going to pass it over to Ray and he's going to tell you guys about some exciting things that are happening in the very near future. Well, if you've been following our social media, um, either our podcast, Instagram, or our personal Instagrams, earlier this week I launched... Um, a record challenge that our podcast is going to be hosting here on Instagram, and uh, we're 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 labeling it the Thirty Wax Hauntings, and it's thirty one days of posting records. Uh, you know, you don't have to be limited to a vinyl record; you can post CDs. You know, hell, I try to like the prompts as you know an artist rather than a band. So if you want to maybe share a book, you know, writers are are artists too. Um, or a painting, something, and, you know, I try to link every single uh, prompt to like a, a movie quote. So just to give you guys like a couple of examples without taking too much time. Um, one of the prompts that I did is for, I used the quote of, here's Johnny, you know, notorious from The Shining. And that's like a record that took you by surprise. There's the infamous quote from, uh, from Ash on Army of Darkness, Hail to the King, baby. And that's like a... A white whale, if you know, or like a, an item that was really hard for you to find that you finally acquired. You know, would thou like to live deliciously? A record that you splurged on. So, you know, I, I try to like pick movie quotes that have prompts that are like connected to the prompts that we're doing. So, like, that's going to be going on the month of October. Um, if you're listening, if you're a listener from TikTok or from any other social media it's like hop on instagram and share it and tell your friends tell your enemies tell everybody because on throughout the month we'll be keeping tabs of people participating because we're also going to be doing a giveaway and the giveaway that i was planning on doing that i'll be posting it'll probably be posted by the time this episode airs though i'm going to be giving away the record and the movie It'll be the 180 gram black copy of Mark Corvin's The Witch on vinyl, as well as my all-time favorite movie, The Night of the Living Dead, the Criterion copy, a Criterion copy on Blu-ray. Um, it'll be a, a bundle that I'm going to be doing, and hopefully that gets more people excited to participate. And I will be giving out an exclusive one-on-one -on -one date with myself to Chili's, and you, as the winner, will be paying. Well, you know... To that, I will add, because it's Chili's, you are going to be, you're going to have to get an exclusive. This is a 
exclusive only, you'll get to witness. It'll be an all. Okay, let me rephrase it. It'll be an all sensory experience with Nate because he will have the just greasiest, most like volatile dish so you can experience him as he farts it all away on the car ride back. So it'll be an all sensory, it'll be an all sensory experience. <laughs> or here's what we can do. We can do one even better. I will fly to Utah and Ray doesn't eat meat, but you guys, you guys could take me on a date to Crown Burger because I've never had it before. And I've wanted to try it. Ray doesn't eat meat, so you're going to find him something that he can eat. And we'll both eat in front of you in the most disgusting way imaginable and fart it up on the car ride home. It'll be it'll be like a scene out of a Christmas story eating like piggies. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, none of that stuff we just said is happening other than the Night of the Living Dead and the Witch. Unless you really want to pay for Ray and I to come wherever you are. Uh, and then we'll think about it. Yeah, because even then I'm like, well, you know, I got to ask for time off and I only have limited PTO. So maybe we can we can do it. We'll do a Skype call <laughs> and we'll just eat. We'll eat. We'll eat cheese pizza disgustingly in the Skype call. <laughs> But listen but yeah no like but that's great <laughs> so you know we'll we'll be doing that so like come go follow our our social media particularly the film monsters podcast on instagram i mean it's cool if you guys reach out on our personal on our personal media but like be sure to be following us um because one of the things to enter the giveaway will be to follow us on the film monster podcast anyway so you know, might as well go follow us and get your foot in the door with this with this little giveaway. Hopefully, it's it's enticing enough for people to get excited about. And if you don't have Instagram, I don't know, maybe maybe reach out to Nate or I. Maybe you you have a different platform, and maybe we can expand the the giveaway to those platforms. If if you're not an Instagram person, I don't know. We'll see if the demand is high enough. If not, we'll keep it on on the on the Instagrams, as they say. We can always move to Zanga or MySpace if necessary. Listen, all I'm saying is I will throw in an extra record if you want to do all your postings on MDOS. Hey, I appreciate you bringing up all that stuff about the giveaway. It's going to be really exciting. Ray and I are going to plan out a bunch of fun stuff for the month of October. We're really looking forward to hear what you guys have to say. So once again, follow us over at the Film Monsters Podcast on Instagram, or you can hit us up on our personal Instagrams, My Exit Unfair for me, Analog C for Ray. And we really appreciate you guys for listening to us. We have a lot of fun. We noticed the numbers are going up on the episodes, and that just makes us happy that people still care and that still engage with our stuff. And we're just having fun doing it. I look forward to it every week. And we look forward to bringing you the last episode in our A24 series next week. And we appreciate you all for listening. And go watch some Michael Bay, I guess. <laughs> Specifically, uh, Transformers 3. Um, sure. I was going to suggest The Rock because I legitimately like that one. <laughs> yeah, that one works. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.